Gresham College presents The Square Mile, the city's historic position within London government and its influence on the modern state of a capital, by Tony Treviers, director of the Greater London Group, the London School of Economics and Political Science. Now we live at a time when I think it's fair to say that three medieval institutions of government still operate today in Britain. The monarchy, the Corporation of London, and the House of Lords. As of today, I think it's fair to say that the Corporation of London looks probably and broadly the best condition of three. <laughs> I don't wish to intrude on private grief, but even if it were not for recent events, there's no doubt that the Corporation of London does appear to be in surprisingly good condition for an institution that has been with us for such a very long time. The recent reform of its franchise, which has taken place after a parliamentary struggle, struggle. the removal of uh, long-term pressures to abolish the corporation, which had certainly existed in parties of the centre-left throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, those pressures have, have gone away, have meant that the city now remains intact, but also an extraordinary amalgam of an ancient institution, one that clearly, and as I'm going to discuss, has its roots deep into Britain's history, but also one capable of finding state-of-the-art modern solutions for the problems of existing in a complex urban environment in the early part of a new century. So that's the thesis I want to pursue, the idea that this is an institution which, despite being extremely elderly uh, and has many antique customs, nevertheless has adopted uh, and adapted to the point where it can survive in a modern world. So where did it all begin? Where did it all begin? Well, of course, with the Romans. The Romans, I mean, I think arguably the, the Celts uh, actually had settlements near here and near there. But the Romans are widely seen as the origin of modern London. They set up their capital in Londinium with a city hall in the square mile, in the square mile as it is today. They ran not only Britain from this point, but also had a system of within-city government based in a basilica that was, as I'll explain in a moment, very close to where the Guildhall, indeed on the site of the Guildhall today, very near the site. When the Romans left England in 410 AD, some kind of anglicised version of Roman life continued until eventually the city was overwhelmed, or the then city was overwhelmed by marauding invaders, and, of course, we know the Saxons re-established a settlement where Londinium had been, including settling St. Paul's site for the very first time, first of several churches on the site. And the Saxons created their city in the ruins of the Roman city. We know from every time that there is um, an archaeological find, usually when the city is allowing another site to be redeveloped. And this, of course, we all know that the City of London is probably the most redeveloped place in the world. 
every time that there is a major redevelopment in the city, there is a fair chance that archaeologists will pounce on the site and will find things that fascinate. And, of course, given the gap in history, the gap in recorded history for the Saxon period, that's our best way of understanding what the Saxons did. There is a powerful suggestion that the Anglo-Saxon folk moot, uh, their equivalent of town government, may have met in the ruins of the Roman amphitheatre. Difficult to think of the wattle and daub uh, housing of the Saxons uh, existing in the middle of these ruined, this ruined civilization, but that's what it must have been like. And part of the Roman amphitheatre would still have been there. And indeed, you can see the circle of the amphitheatre today, picked today, picked out in Guildhall Yard. Now, this is where it is believed that the Anglo-Saxons would have started to meet for their version of London government. And of course, the Guildhall on that site, or very near that site, is where London is governed today. Now, the Anglo-Saxons not only established, therefore, the very earliest origins of the modern city of London, meeting arguably in the amphitheatre of the Roman London, but the pious King Edward the Confessor did more. He decided, as a demonstration of his piety, to establish an abbey on an island west of London, on the River Tyburn. This, of course, was the origin of a second place near, or near what was then London, at Westminster. And this is West, the origin of Westminster Abbey, and indeed, Edward the Confessor also built a royal hall next to this abbey that became Westminster Abbey. And in so doing, took an important, though probably not understood by him, an important second step in creating a second centre of London. Indeed, given uh, that the West End became the centre of, in a sense, what you do at night for your leisure time, the fun part of London, where the city has always remained the money-making part. Uh, King Edward might have been rather less enthusiastic about establishing the West End. But there we are. That's what indirectly he did by citing his abbey at Westminster. So there is certainly evidence of independent local government based at Guildhall, or on the site where Guildhall now is, by 1066. 1066, of course, the beginning, in a sense, of modern history in England, arguably, uh, with the arrival of the Normans. King William accepted the self-government of the city of London. Um, he burned Southwark. Uh, something the city was more or less happy to allow him to do, so not everything changes. Uh, no, the city, the city uh, was very cautious about preparing, uh, about looking after itself, but uh, Southwark was burned, and indeed William I went to the west and sat outside London. In the end, did a deal, traded with the citizens of London, establishing a principle which to some extent has held ever since, the idea that the city would be allowed self-government in exchange for the payment of taxes to the monarch, and that the idea that the city would be allowed to go its own way in exchange for the payment of tax is a notion that has not ever entirely gone away. Now, 
as we all know, London had been established by the Romans at a point where they could cross the river. The idea was they could cross the river, but nevertheless, it was as near to the sea as you could reasonably be and still be able to cross the river. This meant that trade establishment established itself under the Romans and frankly never stopped. There is evidence that whatever happened in the grey, uncharted period of history between the Romans and the Saxon London, that trade almost certainly continued throughout this period. And this has left the square mile as a place of commerce which has developed its own method of rule. Again, principles that are true right the way through to this day. Monarchs and later rulers, more democratic rulers, have been quite happy to tax the city one way or another and also, by and large, to leave it with its privileges so long as it continues to generate the money that those rulers wanted. And that sort of settlement, uh, as I say, has maintained. Now, William may have given London its freedom, but he was not that certain of the city. So, in addition to giving it the freedoms to continue to be self-governing, he did do a number of other things. He set up his centre of government at Westminster, and his son, William Rufus, William II, aggrandised Edward the Confessor's um, hall and built the Great Hall, or started the building of the Great Hall that is at Westminster today. Edward I, sorry, William I had also built a home at Windsor, and crucially, the Normans built a large keep just to the east of the city, but outside the city walls. This is what became the Tower of London, just outside the city, giving the city the freedom it wanted, but nevertheless establishing the power of the state to keep an eye from a keep just beyond the city walls. And again, a pattern has been set for the future. Stronger monarchs came and went, and some of them did intervene in the government of London, as it then was, more than weaker ones. Under weaker monarchs, the city could develop untouched. Thus, for example, some monarchs, such as Henry III, were able to establish more or less direct rule over the city using the office of Lord Mayor as an agent to deliver what the monarch wanted in the city of London. But other weaker monarchs, such as Henry's predecessor, King John, had allowed the city significantly greater freedom to the point, or were weak to the point that they allowed the city greater freedom, and indeed the Lord Mayor of London was the only commoner to sign the Magna Carta, the notion of the city's power within the system of governance that had evolved in Britain by that point, and the, at a point when there was a rebalancing of power of a kind that uh, we came to understand through the work of Badgett, that by that time the only commoner to sign the Magna Carta was the Lord Mayor of London. And as I've said, monarchs needed the city's trading money, its taxes that it could raise because of trading, and never pushed things too far. Still, from this point, and well through into the 17th century, we're still talking about a London which is broadly what we think of as the square mile. The area that had originally, rather smaller than the square mile, settled by the Romans, then by the Saxons, developed into an area that would be recognisable as the square mile today. 
There were, of course, settlements at Westminster, we've heard about them, at Southwark, uh, often where the burghers of the city went for their pleasures, and many they were. Um, and, of course, London started to develop down the river into the Tower Hamlets to the east. But by and large, the central zone of activity for London, the great city, and it was seen as a great city, was very much based in the city and ruled by the city. The office of mayor of London was established in 1192, almost certainly appointed by the king, as I said, as the king's agent, but also as the agent of the monarch into London, a, a role that faced two ways. Later, the monarch was selected by the alderman of the Corporation of London, and indeed a system of ward and guild-based government evolved that can still be seen in outline even today. And of course, uh, no lecture of this kind would be complete without a brief reference to him, uh, Dick Whittington, uh, perhaps the best known of all mayor, Lord Mayors of London, became in some ways, other than perhaps Eros in Piccadilly Circus, a symbol of what cities are all about, the idea of a, of a person who came to London, was browbeaten by it, and leaving to go back to his uh, rural home, heard the bells of London, turned on Highgate Hill, and returned to London to become Lord Mayor of London, indeed several times Mayor of London. Now, a big issue emerged as London, and up till now it's been easy to talk about London because we're talking about the area within the square mile. But, of course, an issue emerged as what we would today think of as London spread beyond the boundaries of this ancient city. And this sprawl began, began seriously in the 17th century and did so very much more significantly in the 18th and 19th. Soon, much of London lay beyond the city, the square mile. Now, this raised an important issue of how these areas should be governed. What happened initially, of course, as elsewhere in England and Wales and Scotland, parish government emerged, and increasingly ad hoc bodies of various kinds. But, of course, as the city grew and grew, and was a very, very dense city, I mean, you know, today, uh, I think at the, the most recent census, the square mile had seven or 8,000, perhaps nearly 10,000 residents in it. In the mid-19th century, the population of the square mile was well over 100,000, and at times it was almost certainly over 200,000. Uh, and for all the Office of the Deputy Prime Minister's efforts to redensify London, I suspect that is not quite what they're aiming for. But the density of London and its surrounding area meant that there was a very powerful need for public services. And industrialization, of course, not only in London, created a spur for the need for municipal government, a spur which, of course, was infinitely more successful in cities such as Manchester and Birmingham and Sheffield, where enlightened businessmen went to Parliament, sought charters, got legislation to create a corporation for their city. But in London, things were more difficult. The city sitting at the heart of the now larger metropolis would not accede to the notion of change. Consequently, 
we see with industrialization a much wider growth and London moving ever outwards, Westminster, Southwark, into the East End, the inner south of London. So by 1820, much of what would today be the congestion charging zone, uh, to use a modern way of putting it, uh, and a significant eastern extension would have existed as built up London. And of course, a whole range of problems associated with very fast development appeared. There was no proper water supply outside the city. The city was capable of providing for itself, but beyond it, no proper water supply. Services, lighting, a whole range of what we would take for granted today as ways of allowing ourselves to live together in reasonable comfort were simply missing at that time. And indeed, Victorian reformers and philanthropists took enormous, almost uh, masochistic pleasure at writing about the tangle of boards, parishes, and other institutions which between them uh, were incapable of providing the kind of government that the city needed. And of course, there emerged enormous pressures for reform from these kinds of philanthropists and social reformers. The question was, could the city's remit be changed? Could its boundaries be expanded? During the 19th century, we saw a number of efforts to reform London government, many of which involved efforts to reform the corporation of the City of London. A number of royal commissions and parliamentary committees examined this idea. Some of these proposed to extend the city to embrace the wider area of what was then built up London. Others proposed to set up entirely new citywide institutions, even more radical. And you have to remember that in other cities, such as Paris, precisely such a move was being made, that the ancient city of Paris, which had started on the little islands in the middle of the Seine, expanded outwards and moved to the point where its boundaries really were what were, as it were, Victorian, had there been such a concept, Victorian Paris. The city, perhaps predictably, opposed all efforts to extend or to reform it. It used many means, not all of which would have met with the full approval of the Committee of Standards for Public Life, in order to defend itself during the 19th century. Um, the city was extremely good at putting on generous dinners, even in Westminster, outside its own area, for MPs on the night of uh, significant votes, and also very good at ensuring uh, that members of Parliament, many of whom were from areas well beyond, beyond London, uh, felt that, in a sense, their best interests were served in the long term by the continued existence of the Corporation of London. And this meant that by the middle of the 19th century, when London was a metropolis of three or four million people, uh, very little had been done to govern London as a whole. As I've said, Victorian reformers and philanthropists wrote at length about this problem. There were appalling problems. Many of you will have read them about the, the dead buried very in a very shallow way in parts of the city and outside, the poor living 10 or 20 to a room in some, on some occasions, no sewers leading to an endless cycle of disease and other social and criminal problems. 
But what finally, inevitably, did it in Britain was the weather. Hot summers in the 1850s left Parliament unable to meet on the riverside of the Houses of Parliament. Many of you may have seen the excellent book written uh, by Stephen Halliday about Sir Joseph Bazalgette, uh, the great engineer of the Metropolitan Board of Works, which catalogues the problems that faced Parliament in trying to meet in these hot summers on the riverside of its building. And as a result of that, a new citywide institution was created, but one which in many ways tells you all you need to know about the way in which London's government was to and still develops. Because was the city forced to expand its boundaries? No. Was a major new public institution with great powers to redevelop the city created? No. What was created instead was the wonderfully named Metropolitan Board of Works, a classic indicator of what was to come. The Metropolitan Board of Works was a joint committee of the City of London and the district boards and parishes, which by then constituted a rough-and-ready lower tier of London government. But crucially, the city sent members to the Board of Works just as the other parishes and district boards did. It was deliberately created as a weak institution, otherwise it would not have received the acceptance of the lower level of government and its parochial interests. Having said that, the Board of Works was also extremely good at building infrastructure. Apart from the period of the London Passenger Transport Board, which I'll come on to, possibly the only institution that successfully drove through the, uh, London's needs or delivered on London's needs for major infrastructure projects over a consistent period. Bazalgette built London's sewer system, still in use today, and some of the engineering for which is occasionally open when there are open days for London architecture. Bazalgette built the embankment, creating the delicate curve of the River Thames, which certainly didn't exist before then. Thames was marshy, it froze a lot, thus the frost furs. Major roads, insofar as there are any broadly straight streets in London, they were almost certain, certainly in inner and central London, built by Bazalgette, Victoria Street, Queen Victoria Street, Shaftesbury Avenue, laid out the plans even for Kingsway, though he didn't execute it. And eventually the Board of Works set up a fire brigade to go along with the Metropolitan Police in allowing London to have public protection services. But almost inevitably, as a weakly created joint board, the Board of Works found itself in its later life accused of corruption. Now, outside London, there, was, there were discussions in the late 19th century about reforming county government to try to give the rural areas of England, Scotland and Wales some form of proper government to match the uh, corporations that had sprung up in the big cities. And, in a sense, when that reform had been articulated, London was left as an area with nothing, as it were, in the middle of this sprawl of shire counties. So London was given its own county, almost as a residual in the debate about how government should proceed. So in 1888, 1889, the London County Council came into existence as an upper tier of government. There was no parallel reform of the lower tier of parishes, 
boards and district boards that still existed and which had indirectly controlled the Metropolitan Board of Works. So the LCC came into existence on the same boundaries of, as the Metropolitan Board of Works, themselves uh, steeped in history and with their origins in a Tudor, the Tudor Bills of Mortality. This is the, the area today bounded by what we know as Inner London. But the LCC took office with the continuation of lower-tier parochialism, the City of London, of course, still there as the authority for the Corporation of London's area. And it was only in 1899 that there was a reform of that lower tier to create metropolitan boroughs. And metropolitan boroughs created a second tier of London government, but it must be said, one that was relatively weak compared with the LCC. So now London had a relatively powerful upper tier government, relatively weak lower tiers, but of course, as at all earlier points, the Corporation of London survived this reform as well to become one, or effectively one, of those lower tier authorities, albeit one with significantly greater powers than all the other ones. So thus, at the turn of the 20th century, we've actually established the two-tier arrangement that appears now to be accepted with one brief interregnum to be the norm for London government. City, as one of the lower tier authorities, kept its own police force, an indication of just how different it was from all the others. The others, of course, fell within the Metropolitan Police District and again survived this reform in 1899 without moving its boundaries. It was still raising a local tax and still determining its own policy and operating with a broadly unreformed electoral system. That's how well it survived right the way through to the end of the great period of reforming zeal in the 19th century. But of course, in the years after the LCC was created, between uh, 1888-9 and the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, London continued to grow outwards. There was no green belt, no planning to, to hem it in. And as London grew out, the notion of greater London emerged. And greater it was because by 1939, the built-up area beyond the LCC area was three or four times bigger than the LCC's own area. This created, again, a huge difficulty of coordinating London-wide public services, the ones that were now needed. There was an infrastructure, but not for some services. The traffic in particular totally confounded an elaborate joint committee that, it, that was set up, the London and Home Counties Traffic Advisory Committee, I think it was called, um, which was a classic London Week Joint Committee, totally unable to cope with traffic as it moved in and out of the LCC area. There was no single transport authority and other infrastructure was often provided either by nationalised industries or by private companies. There was, of course, some city-wide government in the early to mid part of the 20th century. The best-known institutions, other than the Metropolitan Police, which had existed since 1829, was probably the London Passenger Transport Board, which I mentioned earlier. The creation, really, of one individual's zeal, uh, Lord Ashfield, uh, a Briton who emigrated to uh, the United States and then re-immigrated to Britain 
and he oversaw the running of the London Passenger Transport Board at a time when London Transport was undoubtedly in its heyday. He created an epic system of buses and trains and a coordinated system um, run, I might say, by a, a not-for-profit trust rather than by a um, public sector institution, all very postmodern. He and the LPTB was a, an example of a highly successful citywide public service, the one that was utterly um, disputed by the London County Council, whose leader, Herbert Morrison, fought long battles with Ashfield to try to get control over transport into what he saw as democratic hands. Ashfield, as the great stovepipe-hatted autocrat, refused to go along with that. Private rail companies were running services in London, public utilities, and, of course, there were a number of weak, classic London joint committees running services across the built-up area. But the LCC could not coordinate across the whole greater London area. So, inevitably, pressure for reform emerged. Generally, reform pressures from planners and road builders, and indeed some of my predecessors at the LSE, notably an academic called William Robson, lobbied hard for a council or authority for what they called Greater London. Something much similar, more similar, I think, to what they saw as operating in, for example, New York, where there was a single incorporated city for the five boroughs of what had become New York City. But there was, unsurprisingly, enormous resistance from existing governmental institutions. The London County Council itself was, of course, bitterly opposed to any reform that would have meant its own abolition. Central government always, but particularly since Lord Salisbury's time, very concerned at the risk that the power of London posed to national government. And, of course, the City of London, always cautious about reforms, because there was just the possibility that a reform to something else might lead to a reform to it. So these three sorts of institutions held reform at bay right the way through till uh, a royal commission was created in the late 1950s, the Herbert Commission, which from 1957 to 1960 examined the question of London government, coming up with proposals for a Greater London Council with a second tier of borough councils, but as Herbert saw it, a relatively powerful GLC and weaker boroughs, which, after the then government, a Conservative administration, had uh, passed the reform through Parliament, became a weak upper tier with a much more powerful lower tier. This was the Conservatives' way of creating citywide government for Greater London, albeit in a way that weakened the citywide part of it. And that was very important at the time, given how powerful Labour had been in the LCC. The Conservatives had been totally incapable of winning the LCC uh, for most of its latter period of existence. And uh, by expanding the boundaries out to take in the suburban parts of the built-up area, uh, and then by making it a relatively weak authority. Not only did the Conservatives give themselves a better chance of winning it, uh, but also ensured that if they didn't, it wouldn't be that powerful anyway. The reform that took place under the London government of 1963, which created the GLC and the boroughs, left the Corporation of London as effectively one of those boroughs. So yet again, the City of London survived a reform. And that brings us almost up to date. This 
system of two tiers, with a weak upper tier, existent, existed from 1965 to 1986, when, after a mere 21 years, the GLC was abolished. Corporation of London gained from this reform. It took over control of Hampstead Heath and a number of other facilities, which it generously uh, agreed to run for the then government. The Museum of London became all of it, transferred to the corporation. And then, of course, when the Inner London Education Authority, the last ghost and vestige of the LCC, was abolished in 1990, uh, the corporation actually became an education authority, as did the other Inner London boroughs. So this gave the corporation a new lease of life, which it exploited with enormous effect, because this turned or started to create what I would call a modernised Corporation of London, a new phase in its existence. And the way this manifested itself is with new, dare I say it, um, younger leaders of the corporation. And I don't by leaders mean the Lord Mayor of London, who continued as a, a titular representative of the city in the financial and business services industry, but the effectively the local government leaders, the what are now called the chairman of the or chairman of the chairman of the policy and resources committee, and successive leaders, Michael Cassidy, Judith Mayhew, and now Michael Snyder, represented a very different version of the city to the ceremonial city that had been visible before. Indeed, the city came to act as an arbitrator between a highly politicised system of London government. If you remember, many of you will, the bitter divisions that existed between left and right in London government at the time. And the city, which had retained its independent political makeup, was in a very good position with these articulate, persuasive leaders to act as the balance between the warring and balkanised London boroughs. The city went further than that. It provided from its own resources res um, money for London projects and indeed for research into London issues, I'm happy to say, and um, also took on a visible role in promoting the city financial. And of course this happened quite coincidentally at a period when capitalism was in the ascendant and triumphant with the big bang of the mid-80s, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and the realisation across politics in Britain, including on the left, that financial and business services and a modern service-based economy was what Britain was going to depend on, whether people liked it or not. And lo and behold, the Corporation of London was able to articulate a representative voice even more than before for this suddenly enormously important industry. The newly um, sensitised leadership of the corporation lobbied new Labour in opposition so as to remove the commitment that Labour had traditionally had to abolish the Corporation of London. There had long been pressure from the left to abolish the city. The 1997 election, no such mention in the Labour manifesto, nor again in 2001. This was a major advance in the modernisation of the Corporation of London which now easily survived the coming of the Greater London Authority and indeed contributed to the debate, paying for part of the research that actually led to the building up and creation of the GLA. So what does this lead us with today, very, very briefly, to conclude? 
Well, the Corporation of London is in the process of reforming its franchise. This won't move away, I suspect, from the uh, notion of the city consisting of independent politicians, but there is a reform to the franchise so that um, different kinds of company will now uh, qualify for the business vote, and of course the whole franchise will look slightly less medieval than it did before, though not perhaps as radically reformed as some people thought. There are, I would argue, still three kinds of city. There's the city as a London borough, as a local authority. There is the city that people throughout the UK and the world recognise as the city financial, which the city as its local authority chooses to represent, re representing, of course, rather more than just the institutions within the square mile. And then there is, of course, Dick Whitting, what I would think of as Dick Whittington's London, the trusts and the philanthropy, which is money held privately, and which the corporation, as the trustees, can then use for fun functions well beyond those of a traditional local authority. And the city, I think, remains incredibly subtle in its use of that money to bolster its long-term moderating, mediating role. So this Corporation of London has become a key broker within the modern metropolis, within the modern Greater London, a mediator between the boroughs and the association of London, or within the association of London government, a broker between the Greater London Authority and the boroughs, and all upper and lower tiers of government in London need such a broker, and a broker between the city financial and the public sector more generally. There's no doubt that the city has become a leader in shaping policy for greater and central London. It's developed the notion of the city fringe, embracing the areas Camden, Islington, Hackney, Tower Hamlets, and indeed down into Southwark, which it's assisted in rebuilding itself, and in so doing has effectively piloted the idea of extending central London, whilst at the same time ensuring that its own representatives are powerful within the new London-wide government. So this is a very, uh, I mean, a, a new form of city capacity to ensure its own long-term survival, not using the means that the Nolan Committee would have found rather more difficult in the 19th century, but adapting to a different world in the 21st century. So I'll just leave you with that thought, that what we've seen over this long period of history in which the city has emerged from um, the ruins of the Roman Empire, meeting in the uh, remains of its physical presence in Saxon London, right the way through to meeting on the same, broadly the same ground today in Common Council and led by the Lord Mayor, surviving all the changes in between, and doing so, and in doing so, and demonstrating, I would argue, an extraordinary, possibly a unique, and only time will test how individual it and only it will be, but demonstrating an extraordinary uh, individual capacity to reform from within, to change itself, and to continue to offer a voice within the Government of London. Thank you very much. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.